Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Cone of Shame Veterinary Podcast. Guys, I am your host, Dr. Andy Rourke. I am so thrilled to have my friend, Dr. Lance Rosa here again today. Uh, Dr. Rosa is a veterinarian, a multi-practice owner, and a lawyer. He is in today talking about how vets make money. We are talking about compensations for veterinarians. What are people doing? What are they not doing? What are the benefits of the different ways of compensating vets? What are the fallbacks? Uh, What are the ethics? Is it? Is there a problem with vets getting kind of paid on commission? Is that something that uh, that we should be rethinking. Uh, how do we how do we do payment strategies in a way that keeps veterinarians motivated? If you're a veterinarian and you're looking at a payment plan or payment strategy, um, are you really going to get compensated for your work, or are you going to get a bit gypped? There are a lot of new players in the market. There are lots of big time lawyers that didn't used to be the way we did business. It used to be a handshake deal. It's not that way anymore, and that's just not the way of the world anymore. So, what are people doing? What are they paying vets? How are they paying vets? Is this good for vets? What do you want to look out for? Guys, that's the stuff we get into today. So without further ado, let's get into this episode. This is your show. We're glad you're here. We want to help you in your veterinary career. Welcome to the Cone of Shame with Dr. Andy Rourke. Welcome, Dr. Lance Rosa. Thanks for coming back on the podcast, man. It's always good to see you. Hello, Dr. Andy Rourke. Great to see you, man. Um, I lo- I loved our last our last time together when we talked about uh, contracts. We talked about veterinary contracts, associate veterinary contracts. I um I since got to speak at some of the vet schools, and I uh, I always I always call that episode out, and I'm like, oh yeah, you guys should definitely. Before you sign your first your first vet contract, this is a a real good get up to speed primer on uh, on contract negotiation and what veterinary contracts are looking like today. So I, I I like that episode a lot. I feel like a lot of people got a lot of value out of that episode. I am super happy to have you back today. I want to drill into this a little bit more, and let's talk about how doctors are compensated. Sounds great, and this uh, really dovetails into our last conversation because. This is one of those things that's changing rapidly in our profession. If we were having this conversation five, six, seven years ago, it's, you know, contracts and compensation are kind of, eh, you know, not a, you know, not a lot to report in the new front, but just in the last two or three years, man, have they changed both on the corporate aggregator side and on the private practice side. So let's, um, let's start, let's start at a high level. So when we start talking about veterinarians compensation, uh, just, why don't you lay out the main strategies? Yeah. So, you know, in the contracts that I see, and, you know, I'll probably see three or 400 contracts a year. Uh, we're right in the spring season right now. So there's a lot of, there's four or five contracts hitting my desk uh, every single day. And there's really, when I boil it down, there's really three basic ways that a veterinarian can get paid. Um, and now we're talking only about the salary component of their compensation. So they can be paid on straight, uh, straight salary. They can be paid on straight production, or they can be paid on a a hybrid, a base or production compensation package. Some people refer to that as a pro-sal 
type salary. Um, but Andy, the, the real big thing to think about here is, is when I'm, when I'm looking at these multiple offers that a veterinarian has received, I always think in terms of total compensation. So total compensation is that the salary that we're talking about, which is either that salary or that's production wages is another way to say that plus production. So wages plus production equals total compensation. More and more veterinarians are being paid a larger percentage of benefits, which is great. Benefits in veterinary medicine are increasing greatly. But I think for today's purposes, we really need to dive in on the wages component. And that's that salary, that's that straight production, or that's it's that hybrid baser production. Okay, a couple, a couple points I wanna make right here up at, up at the very top. I think it's really easy to have these conversations about about compensation and contracts and for people listening to get sucked into money, 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 like and look at it myopically. And I just I just want to philosophically just say, I think that that's often a mistake. I think that it's a fairly singular view, uh, a way to look at what you get out of your job. Um, I, I guess what I'm saying when I'm saying this is I'm saying benefits matter. I'm saying flexibility of schedule matters. The people that you work with matter. The culture that you work in matters. Uh, all of those things are, are important. And uh, when we look at things like benefits, like continuing education and health insurance and, and those sorts of things, the reason I'm sort of saying this right at the very beginning is I've seen people fall into the trap of locking on to a dollar value as the defining piece of value in their employment agreement. And I just, I want to try to push people back from that just a little bit and say, we're going to talk, we're going to, we're going to talk compensation today. I don't want that to overshadow other things that are, that are important as we start to, to look at, um, you know, to, to look at whether or not we're going to work at practice A or practice B. Wow. I'm so glad that you bring that up. I mean, that's exactly how I see it, that this is a component of select compensation is a component of selecting that job. The things that you listed are super important. And then we can drill into the type of practice that you're at, the you know the type of clientele that you're dealing with on a daily basis. Yeah. And, and and when we're evaluating a job, and maybe a, you know you have two or three or four job offers out there, we're going to evaluate all of those things. It just so happens that money and compensation is one of the elements that you really need to be thinking about. But when I think about best jobs in veterinary medicine. I don't necessarily think about the best paying job. I think about the best job that fits that individual, the culture, the team, the clientele, the type of yeah. medicine, all of that goes into it. So, you know, at the end of the day, you know, however, the reason that everybody's so hung up on compensation is because that's what pays our student loan bills and our mortgage payment or our, our, our rent payment. Um, you know, that's th that's the thing that's easy to quantify is money. Yeah, I was just saying, it's, it's a number, right? It, it's 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 the fact that you can put your finger right on and go, this is a number and it is greater than the number that I got last year or it is less than the number I got at my previous job. And so I I. I I think that you're right. I mean, obviously, it matters. I'm not saying that that it doesn't matter, but I really do think it's easy to um, to get overly weighted in our minds because it is a fixed number, as as opposed to looking at the culture and saying, "I'm going to have friends here," and, and I didn't have friends at my last job, you know. And what is that worth? I don't know what that's worth. They, like no one can put a put a number on that. But this is because it's a number. It. it can draw us into a myopic headspace. And so that's why I just want to put that that disclaimer at the very beginning. And it's easy for, you know, for organizations, for associations to really 
compare veterinarians and compare jobs and compare geographic regions based on numbers. You know, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to compare someone on quality of life and, um, you know, and, and clientele scene and, and things along mm-hmm. those lines. So it, it makes an easy comparison tool. So at, you're absolutely right. People get sucked into it. Let's uh, let's look at. So we're, we're talking about straight salary. We're talking about straight production. And we're talking about a hybrid model where there is a certain amount of salary that is paid. And then doctors have a chance to earn bonus production on top based on uh on what they see and what they do in the exam rooms. How common are each of those three? Is there a clearly a lion's share more common approach or are they fairly evenly uh, split out? Um, In the small animal world, I'm seeing much more, many more contracts. And I'm talking in the 50, 60, 70% range of these hybrid uh, models. And so base or production is what they're commonly called. Um, Some folks, like I said, will refer to them as pro-sal. And we probably should talk about the difference between those two before we get out of here. Um, But um, the base or production compensation package, by far the most common. The second most common would be the straight salary. Um, Now, and if you looked, if we had this conversation five years ago, those numbers would have been absolutely inverse. Um, They would be, you you know, straight salary would have been much more common and popular. Now, here's the here's the the thing that's kind of coming from the back of the pack here is straight production is becoming more and more common in small animal practice. Straight production used to be one of those things that really affected racetrack equine veterinarians. Um, That's how they are commonly paid, Um, but that's no longer the case. Now I'm seeing five, six, seven percent of my small animal contracts that are being paid on a straight production. Now here's the caveat, Andy. Some of these base or production compensation packages, when you start factoring in things like negative accrual, we'll talk about that this <laughs> today as well. Um, if you start talking about payback provisions or base salary adjustments, then that essentially becomes a straight production compensation package. Um, it's just disguised as something else. Yeah. So here's yeah. the underlying theme is these are becoming much more complicated. They're becoming much more sophisticated. And the reason for that is, is and I hate, I'll throw my other profession right under the bus, lawyers, uh, you know, sophisticated and complex uh, lawyers are coming into the conversation and they're drafting some pretty complex compensation packages. And they know to you not to use words like straight production. Um, and, and it's almost a trap for the unwilling, un, unable and, you know, unknowing. It sounds like we should just go ahead and if we're going to kind of review what we're looking at, let's um, let's go ahead and get straight salary and then maybe straight production out of the way so we can start to really dive into well, what is production and then and then these mixed models. So straight salary, um, any significant changes there in the types of agreements that you're seeing where it's just a straight salary model? And we say straight salary for people who are hearing these terms uh, maybe for the first time, uh, that is just uh, an agreed upon amount that a doctor will be paid per month or per year or you know per unit of time it was like you come in and this is the numbers of hours that you'll work and this is what you will be paid so any ch- any changes in those types of contracts not really i mean other than the fact that the amounts are increasing greatly and drastically and so um you know the the starting let's look at the starting salary for 
of, you know, for fourth year veterinary students coming out of senior survey data um, that's published by uh, AVMA and it's published in JAVMA every year. Those numbers have jumped dramatically just in the last three or four years, you know, where the average four or five years ago was 65,000. You know, now we're approaching straight salary numbers in the 90,000. If we start to exclude people that are doing internships, um, exclude, uh, you know, other types of practices, if we're looking at small animal exclusive or small animal predominant. So not a lot of change there. It's pretty straightforward. We just take the salary, divide it by, you know, a monthly amount or a biweekly amount, 26 equal pay periods, and boom, there you have your salary. Um, one thing that I do want to talk about a little bit, though, Andy, on straight salary is, is there are some disadvantages and disadvantages. One of those disadvantages is the fact that straight salary does allow, and quite commonly, associate veterinarians will be underpaid, meaning that they produce more for the practice than they're what they're actually paid. Um, and so it, it's easy to be underpaid or overpaid most commonly underpaid if you're on a straight salary uh, compensation package. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense. So, so think about it like this. Um, if if you're a veterinarian, you're coming to work for me and I say, hey, Lance, uh, you're, you're new here. Um, I'm running this practice. I'm trying to figure out what's fair as far as paying you. And then you jump in and you work. Even if we sit down together at the end of the year and review uh, the numbers together and I say, hey, man, based on what you did last year, I can I can give you a raise. Well, the truth is you sort of overproduced last year compared to what you were making. And now I'm trying to raise you up to where you are. And as your skills improve, as your clientele grows and people like you and trust you more, uh, as you get more comfortable with the medicine, your your ability to see cases and to work up cases will continue to grow. And it'll probably always be this sort of and that's the best case scenario is that it's always a catch up where every year I go, OK, let's get you up to where to where you were before. So I, I do think that that is um, kind of baked in a bit uh, with the with the salary. I will I will tell you this. I want to sort of interject this in, into the conversation. One of the things that I think is good about salary is that I wouldn't cringe if my clients knew that that's how I was paid. And so I, and I think that clients are probably more understanding than we give them credit for. But I think if a lot of us, as we if we question ourselves and say, um, do clients trust me when they say you're only in this for the money? And then they find out that I am literally getting paid based on what I do in the room. Does that put me in a moral quagmire that I don't want to be in? And I think there's some truth to that. I, I'm not advocating saying we need to stop doing production-based compensation because there's a lot of benefits. And we'll talk about those. But I do like to put that forward and say salary is the one that I would feel best uh, about from a public relations standpoint about clients saying, oh, he, you know, he really doesn't have a vested interest in this other than he wants to do a good job and wants to do what's up for my pets. And so I, I think I think that's worth saying early on. I agree with you. And, and uh, you know, from a from it's certainly an advantage of straight salary. And, and, you know, it's certainly an advantage when you're at, in the hospital. And so, you know, rarely and, you know, to occasionally, you know, veterinarians will I'll hear that, you know, veterinarians are fighting for production, that they are, you know, and very, very occasionally I'll hear that veterinarians are offering services that aren't necessarily needed. I think that those, you know, those things are a bit overblown overall. I don't I don't think veterinarians do that regularly whatsoever. But you're absolutely right. It's a it's, it's an advantage of straight salary that you don't have to think about those 
those things. I'm going to get my pay, whether I, whether I recommend this or I don't recommend it, I'm going to do what's best for the patient every single time. And, and a lot of owners do, especially private practice owners do like that, that they don't want their veterinarians to have to worry about those things or their clients to worry about, um, their, their associates are paid on production. Yeah, there are, I think that there are individuals as well who do not do well being paid on any type of a commission program. And I think those people are, are few and far between. I would just say that it is rare for me to find veterinarians that I say this person should not be paid on production because it affects their behaviors negatively, meaning it turns them into someone more pushy. And we've all had pushy salesmen that were uh, that were paid on commission. And we knew they were paid on commission because of the way they behave. I have not found veterinarians to generally behave that way. Um, I, it just it's not our culture. I, I think that it's it's not what I would call a, a professional problem, but I do think that there probably are individuals who uh, they should be paid on salary just uh, just for the uh, for the ease and convenience of the, of the practice. And so I, I do think that I have heard client, I have heard um, clinic owners say, I don't like those types of motives for my veterinarians of this direct compensation. And, and so I, I have seen people push back and sort of say, we're doing salary for this reason. I, it's funny, fewer practice owners want salary than you might think. So if you say, oh, you know, you always the, you you tend to end up maybe a bit underpaid on salary compared to production like that would say I would say that was the the base built, baked in tendency. So practice owners would like that. And I talked to this guy. Uh, the, the story that sticks in my mind is um, when I was a vet student, I did an internship at this hospital and a very successful practice owner was there. A really nice guy. And I just asked him one day, I was like, how do you pay your veterinarians? Do you do a, a salary or do, you know, a, some sort of a production based compensation? He said, you know, I've done it both ways. He said, here's what I found. It's like when I pay doctors a salary at the end of the day, I had to go and chase them out of the doctor's office and make them go see the last appointments at the end of the day. And when I paid them on production, I didn't have to go chase them out of the doctor's office at the end of the day because they felt motivated to go see those appointments. And that's why we pay on production. And again, it just goes back to, to behavior. And I'm sure it's very specific to the practice and it's specific to the people who are involved. But I've always kind of thought that that was a fun, funny way to look at it. You know, is uh, he, he didn't he didn't want to chase didn't want to chase the doctors into the appointments and felt like this helped motivate in a way that he felt good about. Certainly as a contract lawyer, they don't they don't train you for these uh these motivational theory and psychological uh, things. And, but that's exactly what, you know, what these compensation packages can do is they can create incentivization. And I think a smart practice owner is thinking about how do I align interests and how do I, I motivate the people that are working with me and how do I, how do I create a compensation packages package that incentivizes them correctly. And so to go see that last patient a day, to go do that splenectomy on that bleeding abdomen, because that's the best thing for that patient, that's the correct incentivization. But you yeah. can also swing that pendulum over and create perverse incentivization to, to mark up products or to offer products that aren't needed. And it's a, it's a knife's edge, right? And that's what, yeah. that's what any of these are trying to do. And, and you, you nailed it. It really comes down to the practice culture. It comes down to the individual. It comes down to those things other than, hey, this is the best thing for veterinarians, period. Nobody can yeah. say that. Well, I, I think you're you're exactly right. Like, it's one of sort of my core beliefs is that people who jump up and do the work, uh, they should get they should get rewarded for it. You know, the the vets who are like, uh, you know, I know everybody wants to go home 
I'm just going to step in and see this pet that needs to be taken care of. Uh, and you guys can go ahead and go home. Like that person should come out ahead in, in the grand karmic scheme of things, I, I think, you know, uh, or at least come out even. And so I, I do think that there's truth to that. I, I think my I, I think my takeaway point in all of this is just to say, I think the production based compensation, we know it's very common. Um, I, I don't see it as problematic. I personally don't see it as problematic. But I do think that it requires some management. I think people who look and say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pay our vets based on what they produce in the exam room, and then I don't have to manage them. I think that that is a false uh, assumption, and uh, and I would like to sort of dissuade people of that and say, you have to prune this system and keep it healthy. You know, we have to we have to make sure it's motivating people in a positive way, but not pushing them to a point where uh, gamesmanship becomes apparent and we do you know that's the most commonly leveled criticism at any sort of a production uh, system is gamesmanship we we got people and now they're doing things they don't need to do or they're taking certain cases because they think that they'll get a lot of production of this case but they don't want to take the other case that's going to be a headache and require a lot of time on the telephone and you know and, and it doesn't come back to them so i i just always like to just sort of put that into the conversation early on and go both of these systems they have they both have pros and cons i think they both require management absolutely takes a lot of teaching i love your analogy there it takes some pruning you know, so it takes pruning on the front side to, you know, make sure that, you know, people are taught to produce and then it takes management and, and watching on the backside to make sure that people aren't uh, adversely incentivized to do something they shouldn't be doing. So, you know, at the end of the day, it is that balance and it's and there certainly is no set and forget it on any of these compensation packages from the associate's perspective or from the practice owner's perspective. Let's talk about Let's get into the weeds uh, with the production-based compensation. So when we talk about when we talk about this, it seems to me that these agreements have become steadily more complicated, and there's good reason for it. But I, I remember Lance. It, I mean, ten years ago, it was pretty much tw- just flat twenty percent. You know, twenty percent to twenty-two percent, and it was just kind of like, all right, you come in, and what you do, uh, it'd be twenty percent, and then that that's the agreement, and shake hands, and and go on. And of course, the world has changed a lot. Can you? show me some of the complexities in production-based compensation that you're seeing now. Yes. And so uh, uh, several layers of complexity, and you're absolutely right. The, this, these provisions in a contract a few years ago, five, 10 years ago, used to be one sentence. You know, let's just say, you know, the practice will pay you the greater of $90,000 or 20% of your production revenue, period. That was it. Mm-hmm. One sentence. Yeah. You know, you pick, you know, it's the greater of you create that production threshold, that production threshold. Once the veterinarian crosses that production threshold, more or less walks through that doorway into production. That's when the veterinarian got to say, I'm quote unquote on production or I made my production bonus, you know, last month. Now introduce in a couple of complex changes on that. The first one that I think we need to go over is the uh, whether you're getting production on products or services. And this has been a, an invention basically brought on by internet shopping. And so everybody knows at this, cl- at this point that clients can go get items usually for cheaper than the practice can buy them for online. You know, from mm. an online vendor, and we're talking our, you know, everything from our heartworm and, and flea tick prevention over to NSAIDs, over to even antibiotics and things along those lines. And so if a practice is going to compete on those products, 
they're going to have to compete as in to sell them. Um, they're going to have to lower the price. They're going to have to lower their markup. So the days that a veterinarian practice can mark up flea tick prevention, you know, 100% are over. They may be marking yeah. it up 5%, 10% at most. And so if they're paying 20% to the veterinarian every time that flea and tick or heartworm prevention walks out of the door, they're literally losing money on every single transaction. So practices started separating out products versus services and saying, hey, we're going to either pay a lower amount on the products or uh, not pay any production on the products. And so this is one of the first places where the devil's in the details on mm -hmm. how much you can produce. And it does make a big difference, again, on the practice culture, where the practice is geographically. You know, for example, practices in the South, they may derive 40, 45, 50% of their revenue from flea and tick heartworm prevention, you know, uh, from their clients. And so if you're a veterinarian standing in an exam room in the South, and, and keep in mind, I, you know, I grew up and practiced in Texas for a long time. Um, if you're, if you're standing in that exam room in the South and that client has $300 and, you know, uh, flea tick prevention, heartworm prevention for two labs is going to cost for a year is going to cost $300. Yeah. It's the best thing for that client that or the best thing for that patient. That patient has to have heartworm prevention, period. <laughs> They've got to get it. And so unfortunately that if we start to strip out the products, if we exclude the products, then that incentivizes the veterinarian to say, hey, go get it at, you know, whatever.com. And, uh, and, and uh, let's talk about dentals. Let's talk about blood work. Let's talk about services that I actually get paid on. So here we can create mm -hmm. one of these perverse incentivization things. But they also, too, um, from an associate's perspective, if you're not getting paid on any products, any refills, any over-the-counter items, which would technically mm -hmm. be a lot of flea tick prevention, especially the spot-ons, mm -hmm. then you're not getting production. So your total production goes down dramatically. So all of a sudden, you're doing 20% of a much lower number, Andy. And so your your total your total compensation goes down quite a bit. Devil's in the details on these products versus services. And now I see these provisions that there'll be a, a paragraph to or even a page on exactly what's included and what's not. I don't think that I've ever looked at a vet practice as like, is this a product practice or is this a service practice? But I... I would assume that there's a pretty big distinction between different practices, right? You're going to have these practices that are, they do a lot of their business with heartworm prevention, flea and tick uh, control, you know, uh, wellness, uh, vac vaccinations, things like that. And there's other practices, take an emergency uh, clinic, for example, they're not doing <laughs> flea and tick uh, prevention sales. They're, they're doing, they're doing actual medicine. I just, I don't think I'd, I'd, ever actually considered looking at the type of medicine that's being done and thinking about its impact on the production of the of the veterinarian it it's not just on the production of the veterinarian it makes huge differences in the profitability of the practice and so it it has much to do with the value of the practice how profitable the practice is and it all goes back to what you know what what are they focusing on? Are they focusing on products? Are they focusing on services? And so I guess to the listeners today, one of the biggest things that we can you know, say is, is when you're interviewing at that practice, when you're doing an externship at that practice, when you're hanging out at that practice, really try to get, understand what, what is the bread and butter of this practice? Is it flea tick, heartworm prevention cells, or is it Hey, let's talk about next level, you know, services. Let's talk about next level diagnostics. Let's talk about, you know, making sure that we do a great job in dentals and surgery and things along those lines. And then the products are kind of a, hey, we'll do this later on. Now, here's a, <laughs> this is probably another podcast that we can talk about, Andy. But, you know, the simple fact of the matter is, is 
is the products business in veterinary medicine is going away and it's going away for very obvious reasons and it's going away um you know in co the covid pandemic has nothing but exacerbated that change in our profession successful practices at this point in time are focusing on services and, and they're saying we're not going to fight you know the big mega conglomerates on on you know product sales let's focus on what we can do and what we can do best and only we can do and that services yeah that i mean that that definitely makes sense especially as far as um veterinary shortages go right like it is about figuring out what what gaps you're really needed to fill and then filling those specific gaps that's one big change products versus services the next big one we got to talk about is negative accrual yeah i was actually it's funny i just i just jotted that down i was like don't let's let's make sure we come back to that so Tell me what you mean when you say negative accrual. Just just start with an overarching definition. Yeah. So when we say negative accrual, um, and what or when the contract says negative accrual, you know, it says that there is a what it's implying is there's a production threshold. So that veterinarian has to produce so much to more or less earn their salary, to earn their base salary. So if they don't cross that production threshold, if they don't earn if they don't create enough production to earn their overall salary, then that's a negative. There's a negative number associated with that. So the difference between those two in, in a contract that does not stipulate negative accrual, it just goes away. If you didn't produce what you should have produced or what your salary got, and let's call it February, then the balance goes away. The negative balance goes away. You didn't get a production check for the month of month of February. And it, you know, it's back to zero and away we go. Everybody, everybody's, you know, goes there, does their thing from then on out. But if the contract does stipulate that the negative balance will be carried forward, if there is, uh, if it stipulates negative accrual or the difference between the production and the salary um, is, like I say, carried forward, then that contract is said to have negative accrual in it. Now, here's what's ha what happens. So this negative balance, you know, let's say for the month of month of February, you know, that negative balance is five thousand dollars. So that negative balance is now added to the production threshold in the month of March. So that veterinary not only has to produce their normal production threshold, but they have to produce this new production threshold with February's negative balance on it. So it, it creates a moving target from month to month to month. And if the negative balance carries forward again, then April's target changes and it goes up as well. But what this does is it creates a really nasty cycle for the veterinarian. If they don't make production next month or one month yeah. and they don't make it the next month, then all of a sudden that production threshold just gets completely out of reach. It's just not, they're not able to reach it. Now, here's the thing about negative accrual is it used to be very, very rare in contracts. I'd see it three, four, five percent yeah. of the time. Now I'm seeing it like 30, 40% of the time. It has become very, very common in veterinary, in, in, in employment contracts. And it's one of those things where I really, 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 um, uh, you know, suggest to clients, to associates to say, we've got to get this taken out. Um, and it really changes the way that you're compensated. It really moves that production bonus uh, farther and farther down the road. Yeah, I, it's it's basically just you have to make up the shortfall from last month. But, you know, just imagine that you you go in and you start to say January one and you're in a place where January is slow and February is slow and your business doesn't pick up until, you know, uh, May, June, July. 
Well, if you're coming up short in January and then you come up short again in February, man, by the time you get to March, you you you're you have a huge negative amount that you have to make up before you're going to make uh, make any sort of a production. And uh, it just let's just say that you can you can get back up into the into sort of the positive where you should be. You still have this this big thing to overcome. The potential for resentment with the doctor is enormous. I mean, you know, you could because they're you know that they're looking, they're looking at how hard they're working. And you're saying, well, I'm sorry, you didn't, you don't, you don't get, you don't get paid basically, or you don't get your, uh, your, your expected uh, bonus because back in January you were sitting on your hands and you go, it's not my fault I was sitting on my hands. Absolutely. That's my underlying issue with, with negative accrual that, you know, four five, six months down the road when somebody's not getting that production check, then they start to question, like, is there something wrong with me? Is there something their self-esteem starts to suffer? They start to, you know, (laughs) to think, you know, what's going on with this practice? It it creates a lot of self-doubt and and additional self-doubt is not something that we need more of in veterinary medicine right now. Well, you can see how how doctors would throw up their hands and go, forget this. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to make this number. I'm too far in the hole through no fault of my own. And I just, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to play this game. They, you know, it's, it's sort of the rage quitting of, of production compensation. You go, this is, this is crap. I'm not going to make any sort of a bonus. Uh, and so I'm not going to, I'm not going to throw myself in there just to come up short. And it does exactly opposite of what the practice wanted to do with the production bonus in the first place is to incentivize that veterinarian to see that ex- that last room of the day to do- to go a little bit to the extra mile. Well, if you if you remove that one incentivization, then then why have it in the contract in the first place? We're basically back to uh, <laughs> to straight salary all over again. Yeah, well, it's, it's a shifting of risk, isn't it? I mean, it's essentially the practice being like, hey, there's a risk that we're not going to have enough clients to pay you. And so we're going to shift as much of that risk off of us onto you as we can. And that's that's really the negative accrual is their fear is I'm going to do nothing for a quarter, you know, and they're just going to pay me. And then all of a sudden I'm going to show up and start and then they're going to have to pay me bonuses. And they're like, oh, this guy killed us last quarter. And now we're paying him a big bonus because he because he did great this quarter. And I, I get that. I think that's understandable. If you put yourself in the place of the employer, you, you want to. You don't want to be taken advantage of. I think that the negative accrual is shifting a disproportionate amount of that risk over onto onto the employee, onto the veterinarian and being like, hey, buddy, this is on you. And if things don't go well, you're in a hole. Uh, and and that's that's the way that's the way it's going to be. Yeah, that's it's certainly a shifting of the risk. And, you know, like I say, it's happening, you know, more and more often, you know, and I think, you know, I think we can mitigate some of that shifting of the risk just by a a couple of just negotiation techniques and tactics. You know, number one, if I'm working on the associate side, I'll say, you know, let's get negative accrual struck out completely. Let's just get it taken out, you know, all the way. And that's a successful negotiation argument, probably 30, 40 percent of the time. Some practices called out on it and they say, I'll oh, get it. We'll take it out. Don't want to, you know, don't want to deal with it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We want to keep you happy. Keep in mind, Andy, we're in a white hot job market right now. Yeah. White hot. Um, you know, it's certainly a, a an associate's market. So any pushback, some of those practices will take it out completely. The second thing, if we can't get that uh, concession in, the second thing we'll do is we'll start talking about resets. For new graduates, a reset of negative accrual is absolutely essential 
potential at the six month mark. Why? Because they aren't going to be super productive for the first four to six months yeah. you know, of their employment. So we get it reset at six months and then at the very least reset every 12 months thereafter. For experienced veterinarians, I want to see a reset every 12 months. Um, and that's and that is uh, that's very much negotiable. And I'll see that put back in basically. And when I say reset, we're going to reset the negative balance to zero should it exist. Um, and and uh, I see that put back in 30 or 40 percent of the time. But here's the next level of complication here. Negative accrual really affects people that take longer vacations. So let's say the month of yeah. March or the month of May, for example, a uh, common month to take a family vacation, blah, blah, blah. It's also a fairly productive month in the veterinary practice as well. You take a you take a two week vacation, which I I'm a I'm an advocate that everyone should to go reset themselves, get mm -hmm. their mind right, get ready for that busy summer season, take the kids to, you know, have a little fun, whatever else. But you take that two week vacation and your production is literally half, which means you're going to be to the production threshold by halfway, which there's this huge negative balance that gets carried forward in July, June, July, August. And so when you don't get a production check for the next quarter or so, that sticks in your head. Next year, when it comes time to say, hey, I've got to take my, you know, it's time to take my vacation. Well, wow, that two week vacation last year to the beach, that was horrible. I didn't get a production check for nearly, you know, four months afterwards. Let's not do a two week vacation. Let's take a weekend here. Let me sprinkle in a day there so I don't take these big hits on my production. But it incentivizes veterinarians not to take their full vacation. And I think that's a major problem. I've seen that so many times i mean i so many times the vet, vets paid on production that have not gone on vacation in three years you know and i i don't i don't know that they would say oh it's purely because of how i was paid i don't think there's any doubt that it plays a factor in just you know in just not putting those dates on the calendar and and getting away whether it's a conscious decision or a subconscious decision, we don't want that one little word in the contract, negative or two words and one little sentence in the contract, negative accrual to change the way that you take vacations. Um, and so the third level of kind of defense, more or less, to negative accrual is to negotiate out and say negative accrual. I get it. It, it can come into play if I'm working, if I'm in the practice, but days that I'm off, vacation days, CE days, sick days, holidays they are not going to count against my negative accrual. We're not going to get a big fat goose egg on on those days, which would change the, you know, the production threshold. So all we do is say negative accrual does not count if you're on a paid time a PTO day or you're not in the hospital. So between those three kind of negotiation pu pushbacks, we get the effects of negative accrual limited drastically. So it doesn't negatively affect the veterinary associate near as badly. Yeah. The the point of production based compensation from for me as a veterinarian when I when I look at it, right? It to me it's always seemed to be um it's a catch to say to the person, to the doctor, uh, you're not going to get taken advantage of. You know, if if there's a mountain of work coming down on you, then you are going to get compensated for that. You know, and it's, it's to me, it's a psychological motivator to say, yes, it's summertime and you're getting your butt kicked, but you are benefiting from your uh, from your willingness to step into the room, to pick up the extra cases, to fit patients in, to get more patients seen. And that is that is the agreement that's there. When you introduce uh, negative accrual so that um, 
so that I can uh, sit on my hands in the wintertime and pick up a negative accrual. And then that just washes away the extra, you know, the extra work that I'm doing when I'm really slammed. To me, that that defeats the whole point of this. You know, it's 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 kind of a double kick in the teeth for, you know, for for being slow, which you go, well, you know, I obviously I don't want that to be the case. But you just undermine that whole the whole the whole concept for me of, hey, we put this in here so that if things change, if another doctor leaves and you are asked to step up and you pick up the slack and you take it for the team and you really go, like, then you should benefit from that. And to me, negative accrual is just, it, the only risk is undermining that. It, it always felt to me like the, um, when we talk about production on top of a base salary, the goal should always be to try to figure out what, what that fair base salary is and get, get as close to that as possible. And then the production-based compensation. To me, I've always looked at it as a bonus. And I think that that, just ethically, even talking about the clients, I feel like that's a healthy way to look at it. And the clients, are they, they get that and they're generally probably okay with it when I say, I have a salary. This is, you know, this is what I get paid. And there's a potential for a bonus for me if work exceeds what our expected, you know, workload is, you know, if I am, if I stay late, if I fit more patients in, if I, you know, do the surgeries that other people don't want to do, there's compensation for me for that. And to me, that feels right when it flips over to, um, it's not a bonus. This is what I make. And I'm fighting for kind of what I make. I think the potential for resentment there just flares up. And I've just I've seen that differentiation in doctors. If I if I come across a doctor that is uh, sort of leaning into gamesmanship, you know, or those types of behaviors that we don't like is they have generally moved away from the idea of production as a bonus. And they have 100 percent moved into this is the game and this is my worth is how I play this game. And just I, I just I push back so hard against that mentality, but I just feel like the negative accrual just kind of leans into that and makes that more of the way a person's mind would work. I absolutely agree with you on that, that if we start to again, it goes back to motivation theory, it goes to incentivization theory. Um, and it completely changes the dynamic. But yeah, once a once a veterinarian or a medical doctor, whatever else makes that shift in their head, then they look a lot more like a furniture salesman or a car salesman. And, uh, you know, they're just playing with the numbers, you know, day in and day out. And that's that's just called, you know, scoreboarding, like you're saying. And that is a that's an issue. And we should not incentivize folks to do that. And on the flip side, veterinary associates should know those issues. You know, they, we want to make them aware of those issues and basically Number one, negotiate these issues out of their contract or number two, accept jobs, accept employment that doesn't put them into those situations. Hey, gang, I just want to take a moment and jump in here with a quick update of important things that are going on. On Wednesday, June the 9th, I'm going to be teaching a workshop about motivating people who don't want to be motivated. You know that person who you just uh, have a hard time engaging on your team? The person who just doesn't seem excited about changing their ways? The person that you talk to and try to get them on board and try to get them excited? 
they just don't seem like they want to be on board or excited. How do you reach that person? Guys, that's what I am working on with you. It is two hours. It is a workshop, which means we are going to be breaking out into groups and discussing and talking about best practices and tactics and what has worked for us and things that we have struggled with so that we can break those things down and get actionable solutions and tools for you. That is with me, as I said, Wednesday, June 19th, it is for, or June 9th. It is from noon until 2 Eastern time. That's 9 to 11 Pacific. It is free to Uncharted members. It is $99 to the public. And then on June the 23rd, my friend, editor at DrAndyRourke.com, Melanie Kramer is teaching skills in 90. Level up your practice photos. Melanie Kramer, before she was the editorial director at DrAndyRourke.com, before she was the managing editor at VetStreet.com, before she worked at America Online, she was a photo journalist working with uh, sites including the New York Times. She is the real deal and she is talking about the skills and uh, how to make your images from practice do a lot of work as far as getting education and attention from pet owners. So she's going to be working on that. That is going to be June the 23rd and July the 7th. It is free also for Uncharted members and $99 for the public. I'll put both of the links to those in the show notes. Let's get back to this episode. When you were talking early on and you said, um, you know, we've got some base salary plus production with negative accrual. And that basically converts this over to straight production. That's what you're talking about, right? Like once you get into that hole, you are on a straight production model of trying to to generate what you can to get back up uh, to to sort of where you should where you should be earning. H- how is that presented? Is it just the the term negative accrual is used in the contract? Are there other ways that that things like this are worked in that veterinarians are looking at their contract? They feel like they're going to sort of get a um, you know some stability from from sort of a base salary, and they're going to be able to to get bonuses based on their production. But in reality. They're, you know, they, they're, they're headed for some problems they might not perceive. I'm laughing over here, Andy, because uh, this is, again, I'm, I'm going to pick on lawyers, which I think everybody, nobody minds picking on lawyers. Lawyers are smart to this. And so they yeah. know that veterinary veterinarians are going to skim the contract and they're going to look for the words negative accrual. And negative accrual is going to throw that red flag. They're going to say, whoa, 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 this contract has negative accrual. That's what we're looking for. Lawyers know that the especially lawyers that are working for the employer and what they'll do is they'll go out of their way to write a contract that doesn't have the words negative accrual in it they'll use things like <laughs> negative balance carried forward they'll say things like um you know the negative deficit you know shall repeat from you know month to month and those are things where you really have to kind of get down in the weeds where, where what they could say with two words they could say negative accrual might take them two or three sentences to say um, but they're trying not to trigger that associate veterinarian, that applicant. They're trying not to trigger um, the red flag um, that will get that stricken out. And so lawyers are getting much more, lawyers that work in the veterinary space, lawyers that work for large group practices, they're getting very sophisticated about this. And so, you know, my, my advice to associate uh, veterinarians that are looking for a new job is read every word of that contract and make sure you understand what every word and every sentence is saying. If there's a word that says negative, negative balance, something along those lines, then okay, it's time to negotiate. The other thing that you mentioned, uh, Andy, is sometimes these will have repayment provisions from the base salary 
or the base salary will reset according to the production. So now we're not talking about just the production bonus. We're talking about modifying someone's base salary or in a worst case scenario, having someone pay the practice back for their base salary. Let me tell you, that is what? not a pleasant situation, but that's ex- oh my god! Yeah, that's exactly what I'm referring to when I'm talking about now. This starts to look a lot like straight production, and the way that that will be often worded in the contract will be something like, "Your salary is a forward of a projected production amount," and that's all it is. It's it's not actually a salary. We're we're forwarding what you what we think you're going to make as far as production, and if you don't make it, then you owe us that back. Wow, I mean, I, when I see that in a contract, I mean, I say we've got a major red flag. We've got to really work this out before you can sign this contract. Dude, that that just just being presented with that would make me angry. You know, just just like. That feels ah, oh, that's brutal. So the idea that that you 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 don't make the production, so you're going to pay the practice back, and and you're a, a, a new doctor or a young doctor, and you go, I don't have a clientele. You guys didn't give me appointments to see, and now I'm supposed to pay you back. Like it's essentially oh. a straight production compensation package that's disguised, that's hidden, and I think that that's that's even dirtier than the actual straight production. Oh, I agree. I I, I don't think there's anything wrong with just saying this is a straight. Pr- production package and everybody knows what that means and you do it or or you don't do it you know and so when we talk about straight production we're talking about there is no base salary is 100 percent what you generate uh is is what it determines what you get paid and i i don't think there's anything wrong with that as long as everybody knows what they're going into and there's going to be some management behind it and you know i i and there are cases where that compensation system works great it's exactly what certain people want and it's good for them and that i have no problem with that ending up in that position thinking that you were getting the stability of some sort of a base salary that's that's problematic that's problematic because keep in mind if you're on a straight production compensation package the associate is taking a lot of that risk of slow days of clientele not mm-hmm. coming in of a global pandemic whatever that looks like and so if they're taking that risk then they are paid they should be paid more so their production percentage is usually a little bit higher because they're accepting that risk not not the client so in a straight production compensation package, the associate can negotiate for more. But again, all the cards have to be on the table. Nobody's playing hide the ball. And that's what these really convoluted negative accrual repayment provisions in a in a proposed hybrid model. It really is just a, a hidden model. Now, I want to be very clear with our listeners here, Andy. This is really pretty rare. It's, it's It doesn't happen quite often. I don't want you to think that every employer is just out to play gotcha. But yeah. it is happening more and more in veterinary medicine than it was just a few years ago. So I think it's it's of note. This and this yeah. is not just a one or two, you know, uh, out of the last year that I've seen. You know, I, I've seen enough to say, hey, it's it's time that we dedicate some time on on podcasts like this and some time in the classroom to say, watch out for these things. Yeah, that I I have not, I have not seen that. That is uh, that is amazing. All right. Uh, let's go ahead just to sort of bring this back around. I know that the question that people want to want to hear, and I, I, I think the answer is way too 
big and nebulous to ever sit down and answer in general terms. But people want to say, well, what about what about these what about these percentages? And, you know, so say, what percentage should I get paid and what is the magic number? And as I'm talking to you and you're talking about, well, it depends on how we do production. It depends on how uh, on what compensation we get from products. Do we get products? Do we not get products? Do we get food? Do we not get food? All of those things would impact what percentage you would expect to make, correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. But I'll also add another caveat there. The amount of guaranteed benefits also changes that production percentage quite a bit. So if the veterinarian, let's just say, you know, hypothetically, mm-hmm. and it's not hard to get to a, an, a benefits package of $25,000. Well, that's guaranteed money. It doesn't, you know, quote unquote, go away if the veterinarian crosses the production threshold. It, it doesn't. It doesn't change with production. So the more more guaranteed benefits that you get, regardless of your production percentage, the lower that your production percentage should be. So earlier, Andy, you quoted, you know, somewhere in that 20% range, that's still absolutely the guidelines. Really what I see is somewhere in that 18 to 22% range, 18 being more on a straight everything, you know, everything that's included, you know, uh, you know, uh, I've seen some as low as 14 and 16%, and that's called a blended average. But, you know, for all intents and purposes, 18 to 22%. When you start to get into that 22%, of production, you see that, you know, that top level number, then the practice will usually start excluding things out like flea tick prevention, over the counters, nutrition items. They also have a very low markup as well. So the higher the percentage is, the more things that are usually excluded. And that's why it's absolutely essential to understand what's the services products breakdown on that practice and what can I expect in services to produce? What can I expect in products? Now I'm going to take it to another level, Andy, when we're start we, earlier, or I opened the conversation with let's talk in terms of total compensation, wages plus benefits. If you're looking at a wages plus benefits, and so this is, you know, all of your benefits, health insurance, days off, you know, cell phones, CE, all of that stuff like that. That percentage is usually in the 24 to 25% range. And that's pretty locked on on a lot of practices. And so I think one of the better ways to think about it is, is let's talk 24, 25%. And what the business people refer to is, is that's the total cost of employment. So that's your benefits, that's taxes, that's employment taxes, social security, that's workers comp all the stuff that you that it takes the practice to employ you it's usually about 20 to 24 to 25% of your total production that makes sense i mean there's um I, as a business owner i continue to be uh, amazed at how many things like that you have to pay for that the employee never sees you know we just uh we just hit the size in in our little company where we are required to carry workers comp insurance and it's not cheap and it's just uh, it's just one more thing that kind of goes on top. But people don't people don't realize, you know, those those expenses are real. I, I don't I don't want us to um, I don't want us to end this uh, after sort of a discussion that that feels anti-employer. And I, and I don't want it to, to be that way. We very much talked about looking at the contract from the employee standpoint as we wrap up here, Lance. Do you, do you have um, what do you think makes a fair contract? Like, what do you think makes a good, fair contract that an employer would feel should should feel good about presenting and that uh, a veterinarian should feel good about getting and receiving? My thoughts go immediately to the long term game. 
And so if a vet, if an practice feels that they're putting a contract forward that says, hey, I'm comfortable paying you this for the long term. I want you to be successful for the long term. And here's the most important thing about that, Andy, is I want you to be paid per market basically what the market says for the long term. And mm-hmm. so your 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 salary should be increasing because of cost of living adjustments or as you become more prof as you become more productive, as you get to know the clientele, the team, the culture, the practice, you're going to produce more, so therefore you're going to be making more and you're going to be fitting into that market approach. So from an employer's perspective, and keep in mind, I'm railing on employers here at times, but I'm one too, right? So I own a group of practices. You're you're a (laughs) multi-practice owner. And so, uh, you know, it's essential for me, you know, when I'm thinking through these things is, you know, I don't want gotcha moments in front Mm -hmm. of the associate. Um, I want to understand what the, what's on the associate's mind and what, what they're thinking about and what could cause problems down the road. I don't want a gotcha moment in a year, 18 months, because I don't want to have to go and find another associate. I don't want to have to rehire. I don't want to have to introduce the clientele to another veterinarian. I want them to be there for a long time. So to me, a fair contract is one that both parties can be in it for a long, long time. Now, when I say long, long time in veterinary medicine at this point, you know, five years is a is a is a pretty good run for most veterinarians. If we can get more than that, then that is awesome. That means that everybody's doing their job. Everybody's being fair um, and we're doing the right things in the practice. Yeah, no, I think that's great. I think that's that's what we all aspire to is uh, is building and maintaining a reputation for being honest and good to work for. Uh, that that's really it lance uh thanks so much for being here I, I really appreciate your time i appreciate you walking through all this with me super fun andy as you can tell i i <laughs> i'm one of those nerds that one of the few nerds that really enjoys talking about compensation you know but at the end of the day um in contract law for that matter you know at the end of the day my goal with all this is to make sure that associates are educated that they understand what they're getting themselves into um, and, you know, and, and they're not naive to these facts. And on the employer's perspective, it's, hey, what are the issues that are out there? What are other practices doing right? What are other practices doing wrong? And how can I do a better job in my practice? And so, you know, my goal is to, to elevate everyone in the veterinary practice, whether it's on the associate side or the employer side. Lance, you do education uh, at drip.vet. You have continuing education there. You do the required DEA uh, continuing education for doctors and veterinarians. I took your class. It's excellent. It's really well done. Um, you uh, you do practice law and you do take uh, clients who are veterinarians and you do this stuff for a living. Where can people find you if they want to connect with you or have questions or uh, you know ask about uh, bringing you on to review their contracts, things like that? Thanks for that, Andy. The best place is over at drip.vet. And you're right. We have uh, we have the opioid mandatory opioid training classes that are in uh, 17 states, opioid 411. Great to hear you took the course. I'm glad you liked it. Hope you got, you know, picked up a few pointers on there. But we also have a ton of other stuff on business law, on legal related topics, on, you know, uh, uh, topics for practice owners, um, et cetera. But yeah, drip.vet's the best place to uh, to find me. That's where I hang out these days. All right. Thanks again for being here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. And that is our episode. Guys, I hope you liked it. Hope you got a lot out of it. I always enjoy uh, Dr. Rosa. I always learn a lot. It makes me think about uh, it makes me think about a profession the way that it is rapidly evolving. And so I, I love that he comes in and he does uh, 
he does these podcasts with me. Anyway, guys, if you got anything out of the podcast, please share it with your friends. And also feel free to write an honest review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Just let them know what you think of the podcast. That is how people find me. It always means the world to me and my team when people uh, enjoy the podcast. So anyway, that's enough of that. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. And I hope to see you next week.